Our passage today comes from Luke chapter 23, verses 26 to 43. Luke 23, beginning in verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us into the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would draw near to us in this hour. Lord, I confess that I feel entirely inadequate to convey the greatness and significance of what is contained in these words. And so I pray for your help. Lord, I pray that the glory of Jesus Christ would shine forth. That his perfection and his holiness and his sufficiency and his saving power would be impressed upon our hearts as we take up this crucifixion account together today. Father, I pray for the young and for the old who are here. Lord, I, I ask that you would use your, your word to minister to the hearts of the young, that they would remember their creator in the days of their youth. God, that you would save their souls and give them hearts of flesh. God, for those of us who are older or advanced in years, I, I pray that our hearts would, would be tender towards your word, that you would help us to hold fast to the pattern of sound teaching, that we would continue in what we have learned, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. I pray that Christ would be magnified in all of us. It's in his name that we pray, amen. Uh, 
Well, at last we come to the cross. And the reason that Jesus came into the world to suffer and to die for sinners, it, it is what we preach as of first significance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus, having been offered up in the place of a convicted man, now goes to die outside of the city. This was not to get him out of the way. On the contrary, it was designed to put him and others who were in his shoes in the most highly trafficked places on the, the main thoroughfares going in and out of the city. It was so that their deaths could serve as a deterrent uh, to anyone who might be tempted toward the same kind of crime. This principle comes from Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 23, where it says, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Jesus goes out and he carries his own cross initially. This would have been that the, the, the horizontal uh, cross beam that would have been either tied or set into a slot on that, that vertical member that was already in place at the execution site. Jesus carries this for a time until this man Simon of Cyrene is seized and he is conscripted to carry it for him. And the text doesn't tell us why. Uh, presumably, uh, it, it's because Jesus is now in, in this weakened physical condi condition. But if you look at Mark's account of the same episode, you see that he mentions that Simon is the father of Alexander and Rufus. Men that he, he seems to assume would be known to the churches. Perhaps this is the same Rufus that is, is mentioned in the book of Romans, a man that we know at the, at the very minimum had a believing mother because Paul asked the church to greet her because she had acted as a mother to him, to the apostle Paul. If this is correct. You have then here a snapshot of the cost of discipleship a Simon of Cyrene, a believing man, follows after Jesus, literally carrying the cross behind his Savior, following after him. We, we tend to think of a cross as a burden to be born. Sometimes you may have said this or heard others say it before. Well, I guess this is just my cross to bear. But the cross is an instrument of death. It's an instrument used to, to put people to death. That is what Jesus had in mind when he said, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It points to the costliness of following Jesus and to this reality that it is in losing one's life for his sake and for the gospel's that we find our lives, that we discover what true life really is. Disciples of the Lord Jesus take up their cross, following after him, just as Simon of Cyrene did, loving not our lives, even unto death, if it's required of us. Now on their, their way to Golgotha, there follows this great multitude of people and of women who are mourning and lamenting for him. Now you, you might be tempted as you sort of picture this, this scene in your mind to be moved by it. You, you picture women lamenting for Jesus. You, you might find your heart being stirred as you think about Jesus's sympathizers here following after him. And there are these, these tears that are streaming down their faces, but Jesus does something very surprising. Uh, in this episode, he turns around and he admonishes them. He offers them correction and actually a word of warning as he goes to the place he is going to die. He, he quotes from the prophet Zechariah 
And he, and he says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Days are coming when the, the reproach that you would normally associate with barrenness, with, with childlessness, would actually be considered a blessing. Everything is going to be turned upside down. Why would that be the case? Well, judgment is coming. If, if you have had ears to hear and you've, you've been following along throughout our, our study in, in the gospel according to Luke, you've already picked up on this theme Think about when Jesus was, was weeping over the city in Luke chapter 19. He says, would that you, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. He says it again in chapter 21 and verse 20. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it. Uh, the historian Josephus talks about this and uh, what happened during those years leading up to AD 70, some of what can only be described as unspeakable horrors. Jews inside the city of Jerusalem were, were going hungry, horrible uh, famine swept through, left no one untouched in one way or another. People were attacking one another, not, not just those without, not just uh, the Roman occupiers, but, but one another inside the city, friends over the barest scraps of food, some even resorting to eating their own children. In days like this, you might call a childless woman blessed. Jesus says that things would be so dark and so grim that they would cry to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. This is drawn from Hosea chapter 10 and verse 8, where in a, in a very similar way you, you find Israel facing pending destruction because of their devotion to idolatry, because of their waywardness because of their faithlessness to the Lord. And now again, Israel will find themselves crying out in the same way that they had done so many years before. Let it come to an end. Death would be better than going on like this. God, just let the hills fall on us. If things are this bad, when the wood is green, when, when, when Christ is alive and he is with us and Evil of this nature is done to someone who is, who is innocent, so pure and undeserving as him. What will be the outcome of those who, who do not call on the name of the Lord, who do not walk in faith and repentance? When the wood is dry, to put it another way, if God did not spare his only son, if wrath was poured out on him who was so innocent and so pure, how much more severely will his wrath be made known to the impenitent, to the unrepentant? How much more cause for mourning and lamentation will, will there be when judgment falls, not on the righteous, but on the wicked? Now, brothers and sisters, the point is we look at a text like this is not just to say, look, things are about to go from bad to worse, but rather to, to impress upon their hearts and our own that, that Jesus's death and the, the, the rejection of God's chosen Messiah spells destruction. 
It spells destruction for those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. They're weeping for Jesus, but they should be weeping for themselves. They should be weeping for what, what this signals for the nation. Jesus is going to be raised. Jesus is going to be victorious. But Israel's, Israel's rejection of him spells disaster for them as a nation. Now, at the same time, I, I, I think it is instructive to see that Jesus does call them to weep. He calls them to weep for themselves. He does not in any way say, look, you've got what's coming to you. Not at all. The warnings that we find in the scriptures are always issued with an eye toward repentance with an eye toward calling us back to the Father. And the fact that the nation at large had, had, had rejected Jesus didn't mean that the prospect of salvation for some had evaporated. So Jesus aims to take the tears that they shed over what they're witnessing as he goes to the cross to drive them to this deeper, uh, more profound, uh, more careful consideration of what this actually means for their own souls. Perhaps this is a little bit crudely put, but in a way he's saying, don't feel sorry for me, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Weep not for me. Think instead about why this is happening. Think about what rejection of the spotless Savior, Savior means for your account, for your soul. That lesson still stands. It still stands for us. Brothers and sisters, we apart from the working of God's spirit within our hearts, apart from having a, a, a new heart, a heart of flesh, we are that dry wood that is described here, which will be so quickly kindled on the day of God's wrath when it is poured out. The, the destruction of Jerusalem, it, 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 it presages a, a, a day of judgment infinitely larger in scale that is still on the horizon. It is that day of the Lord that is spoken of so frequently in the minor prophets. That day when the righteous judge will appear to judge the quick and the dead. He will return, Matthew 25, the son of man will come in his glory and all the angels with him. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered not just Jerusalem, it says, but all the nations. And he will separate people, one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And so the message that Jesus speaks to these women, weep not for me, but for yourselves and for your children, it still stands. It still stands for us today. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, will any take him at his word? Will any truly hear and believe on him? Look at verse 32 in your Bible. It says, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. 
Now, as it turns out, this is not just an aside in the biblical text. Uh, these other two criminals are not there just to add a little bit of color to, to the narrative. These two men actually feature very prominently in the, the crucifixion account, even more prominently than Jesus's actual death does. The, the details of his death, as horrendous and painful as that was. Why is that? Well, it's the purpose of the crucifixion that the gospel puts in bold. It's the significance of the cross that the scriptures really glory in. And these two men, in very distinct, diametrically opposed ways, are, are emblematic of the two ways men can respond to the significance of the cross the significance of the Son of God nailed to a tree. We'll come to that in just a moment. First, verse 33, it says that when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. Notice that there is nothing dramatic here. There is nothing theatrical uh, the text does not labor the point. It doesn't indulge in any kind of gory or gruesome details the way that some passion plays do. Uh, it does not invite you to gawk at what is transpiring here, but rather to stand in amazement at the one in whom no guilt was found. The one of whom it was said multiple times over, I, I found nothing in him deserving of death. And yet here he is, nevertheless, stretched out on a cross for sinners, pouring out his lifeblood. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, crucified between two criminals. The prophecy that Jesus fulfills there in uh, Isaiah chapter 53 goes on to say, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And you find that if you look in your Bible at verse 34, it says, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Here you have the heart of our Redeemer so manifestly on display in his dying, what do we see in the Lord Jesus Christ? He remains more concerned about the, 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 the souls of the lost and about their predicament than, than that of his own. He prays for them. He lives out his own words from Luke chapter six and verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. And so Jesus does that very thing. And he intercedes on behalf of his enemies. He intercedes for his adversaries, his persecutors, those men who had hated him and shown him so much malice and scorn, men who had beaten him, the very ones who had scourged him, the, the ones who had paraded him in, in utter humiliation, the one who had made him a spectacle of shame. There were men there who had cursed him and, and blasphemed him, and yet Jesus lifts his voice up to the Father and he prays for them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Imagine just standing there as a soldier whose job it was to, to carry out this sort of thing. Uh, you are you're standing there holding the hammer that drove the nails through his, his hands, or you're, you're holding that spear that pierced his side, and you hear him pray for you. The normal thing would have, would have been for the one who was nailed to the cross to hurl insults and to, to spit upon his abusers, but Jesus prays. He prays. It's a love that passes knowledge. It passes all understanding. 
Thomas Manton contrasts that with our own instincts in times of trouble and affliction that we face. He says, if we be afflicted with any pain in the teeth or head or eyes, we are so overcome with the sense of it that we can think of nothing else. We neither admit the visit of friends, nor will we trouble ourselves with any business. Our pain wholly engrosseth and taketh up our minds and thoughts. But Jesus Christ, in the midst of his agonies and painful sufferings, remembereth not only friends, but enemies, and is solicitous about their salvation. Oh, that we might be solicitous about the salvation of those who despise our Lord and perhaps even hate us because we follow him, that we would be desirous of their salvation, that we would follow the example of our Lord and pray unceasingly for them. Jesus prays for their forgiveness, something that could only be achieved by way of the cross. Had Jesus not gone to Calvary, this prayer never could have been offered and it never could have been answered as we see answered later in the book of Acts as those that uh, he prays for here eventually go on to call upon him for forgiveness. But Jesus does. He offers his life so atonement could be achieved. Wave after wave of prophetic utterance is fulfilled just as you walk through this crucifixion account here in in Luke chapter 23. At the end of verse 34, it says, they cast lots to divide his garments. That is in fulfillment of Psalm uh, chapter 22. In Psalm 22, you have a, a depiction of someone who is likened to a worm. Someone who is less than a man, the object of mocking and, and wagging heads. In its original context, uh, David, the psalmist, he has his enemies surrounding him and they are, they are ridiculing his confidence in the Lord that Yahweh will deliver him, which is exactly what you see in the crucifixion of Christ with his enemies standing around. Luke presents for us three groups of people who are standing there at the foot of the cross. Uh, First, you have people, just people who stand by watching. Second, there are rulers scoffing. And then third, there are soldiers mocking. The people stand by uh, watching. They gawk. The rulers take a more active role. They scoff at him. They say, he saved others. Just take those words for a minute though, would you? Did he not save others? Oh, how he had saved others. Oh, how many times had he saved others. They spoke a word of truth, even as they deride him. He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, little did they know that he hung there willingly. He hung there of his own accord. He said on another occasion, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again, this charge I have received from my father. Jesus chose not to save himself. He could have called legions of angels and the father would have delivered him. Jesus chose though to hang willingly. It's evident here they have no understanding that God's plan, even in his crucifixion, marches forward. Jesus says they know not what they do. They don't realize what is being accomplished even here. The soldiers come and they offer him sour wine. 
That is in fulfillment of Psalm 69. I looked for pity and there was none and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. There is an inscription that hung above his head reading, this is the king of the Jews. Typically, you would have the crime that you were indicted for inscribed on a plaque that was hung above your head as you were crucified. Now, in Jesus's case, Pilate had written Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. He did so in no less than three languages, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. It was there for all to read. Well, there's an interesting little side story that goes on here in Jesus's case. The chief priests come in and they say it, they, they see it and they say, don't write that. Write instead, this man said, I am king of the Jews. But Pilate answers, what I have written, I have written. And so a blunder of sorts on Pilate's part actually testifies to the truth. I am the king of the Jews. This is the king of the Jews. Now, church, there is one more who joins in the reviling. If you look at verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. He remains as he was, even as he finds himself pierced through with nails on the brink of death, soon to step into eternity. This man rails at Christ. Still, he remains, as he always has been, hardened in his sin, altogether unrepentant to the very final hours of his death. Beloved, I would say to you this day, don't ever think to yourself, I will turn to Christ some other time. When the lost person, when, when the one who is estranged from God tells themselves, I will deal with spiritual things some other time, they make two faulty assumptions. When the good news of the gospel is preached that in Christ there is to be found mercy and forgiveness, that by grace through faith you may be saved, you may be set free both, both from the penalty and the power of sin. You may receive the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When that happens and the non-Christian's heart is convicted, his, his conscience is pricked, and yet he responds by saying, I will attend to these things some other time. He is operating on two grave and faulty assumptions. The first is this, that there will be some other time. You do not know that there will be another time. You do not know that you will have another opportunity. And understand, dear ones, that when I say this, this is not fear-mongering. This is not attempting to coerce a decision this is the gospel truth. You have no guarantee of tomorrow. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You have no promise of tomorrow. This is why the Bible says now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. It is today. Nothing is more important than this. This is eternity that we are talking about. Some of you have, have deceived yourselves into thinking that you will get serious about the things of God some other time. In a manner of speaking, you are banking eternity on a deathbed conversion and you are deceiving yourself. That is folly and you need to take a long hard look at this thief hanging on the cross to see it as such. 
Now, secondly, the Bible is so very clear that rejecting the gospel and the hope of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ leads to further hardening of heart. This is is getting at the second faulty assumption. Those who refuse to trust in Christ for salvation, who know I have not been washed of my sins through the blood of Jesus Christ, I have not been reconciled to the Father through his Son, they assume that they will be able to hear and to perceive and to have the spiritual concern and to respond to Christ in the same way that the work of the Spirit of God through the Word of God has wrought in their heart today. The Word of God argues contrary wise. It, it argues in the opposite direction. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 15. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the rebellion. You, you see there, ever so clearly, that there are only two paths you can take in response to God's word. You can submit yourself to it, trusting and resting in Christ. You can enter into peace with God, having been justified by faith with him, or you can harden your heart. But there, there is no middle way. There is no place of neutrality. There's no remaining as you are. What you call delay, the Bible calls hardening your heart. Proverbs 29, verse 21. He who is often reproved, yet stiffens his neck, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. I can tell you, as, as a pastor, that few who make it to their latter years estranged from Christ have any interest in dealing with him on their deathbed. Any real interest in the things of God. And that is epitomized in this criminal here who in his dying breath remains full of bitter unbelief. One old poet said, one thief was saved that none should despair, but only one, so that none might presume. Matthew Henry said it this way, true repentance is never too late, but late repentance is seldom true. What a mighty contrast we have then in the other criminal who looks across Jesus to this other malefactor, and says, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Now, dear ones, the really astonishing thing is that things did not start off this way as they hung on the cross there together. This man did not go to the cross with a heart that was tender toward Christ, that was humble or contrite or remorseful for his sin. I confess that this is something that I had not fully seen until this this week as I was studying the word. But Matthew and Mark each tell us that it was both of these robbers who reviled Jesus Christ in the same way. This man, too, joined in with the other criminal and all the rest down below who deride him. But somewhere along the way, he began to see things differently. Something began to change in his heart. No longer did he revile the Lord Jesus Christ. This man has a falling out with his former companion. And that falling out is over the Lord Jesus Christ. Who hangs between the two of them. While he is hanging there on the cross, he goes from this place of jeering and scoffing at Jesus to this place where Christ's person and his work is so impressed upon his heart and mind that he suddenly humbles himself. And you can see it. You can see it in what follows in that he has both a right self-assessment and he has a right assessment of Jesus Christ 
in his person and work. If you look at verse 40, he speaks of the reality of judgment, uh, that there is a God in heaven every man is answerable to. You can even say that there is an evangelical zeal that arises within him as he considers the spiritual straits that his fellow thief finds himself in as he realizes this man doesn't know the fear of the Lord. Do you not fear God? He begins to cry out to him. You are under the same sentence of condemnation. Is there nothing about that that makes you shudder, seeing that you are yourself condemned to die? You're about to meet your maker. This man, who has now turned his heart toward Christ, he sees in the state's execution of justice an extension of the Lord's own character, that God is righteous and holy, that he will not let the guilty go unpunished. It, it, it seems very much to imply that, that he knows very well he's about to stand before the presence of his creator. Don't you fear the Lord? You see also that he acknowledges and confesses the reality of his sin. He says, we are under this sentence of condemnation indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. In other words, he agrees with the charges that hang over his head. He agrees that the wages of sin is death. Not just that they are, but this is right. This is just. This is good. This is our due reward. He consents to God's punishment and says, yes, I deserve this. Can you see yourself here? Do you identify with this man? Have you, have, you brought, have, have you been brought to confess what this man does as it relates to your own account? I am under this, this sentence of condemnation and indeed justly, justly. He sees that he is one who is in debt, morally speaking, so there's, there's remorse. He knows his deeds are lawless. He knows he has transgressed an objective moral standard. And so owning it all, apart from any kind of excuse or rationalization or minimization, he confesses it. He confesses his sin. He says, this is who I am. I have fallen short of God's glory. I've fallen short of God's righteous requirement. Notice then, brothers and sisters, that this, this fear of God is not the kind of, uh, quote, fear that tries to run and hide and cover over one's offenses. It's not the kind of fear uh, that you find, for example, with Adam and Eve in the garden when they go and they try to cover over their nakedness. Rather, it is a fear that does the very opposite. It is a holy, trembling fear that actually, it lays bare the reality of one's sinful condition before an infinitely holy God. That's what you have in this man. He knows there's no hiding from him. He has come to a personal understanding of what of Hebrews chapter four and verse 13 says, that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So again, let me ask you, beloved, does your heart agree with the Lord's assessment of your condition? Does your soul give assent to his word that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? Not just in generalized terms, but in personal terms, that I have this sentence of condemnation over me and indeed justly. Praise God that this is not what the Lord, it's not the end of what the Lord opens his eyes to see. In verse 41, he sees the great disparity between himself 
and the one who suffers next to him. He says, but this man, on the other hand, this man has done nothing wrong. This man, this criminal, begins to herald the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not only does he confess the vileness and the filth of his own character, but he confesses the purity and the holiness of Jesus's. He realizes that Jesus, unlike himself, suffers death not because of sins that are his own, but because of the wickedness of sinful men, because of others. And so we come to his appeal. He makes his plea for salvation. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What can a man in his condition say to the Holy Son of God? What can men and women like ourselves offer to the righteous Messiah that we might get into his good graces, that we might be shown some bit of favor. favor. There's nothing we can do, is there? There's nothing that we can do but come to him with the empty hands of faith and say, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It is perhaps the simplest expression of faith that you can find in all the scriptures. And you see what is implied in this petition. When you come into your kingdom, here indeed is a king, the only sovereign who will come into a kingdom because he's worthy of a kingdom. He's met the requirements of that kingdom. The thief agrees with that sign hanging over Jesus's head. This is the king of the Jews. What's more, here's the kind of king who deigns to have dealings with scoundrels and criminals. Isn't that wonderful? Here is the kind of king who looks upon men who have no way of climbing their way up into heaven, no way of making themselves right with God, no way of atoning for their own sins. He trusts that in Jesus, though, there is hope of life beyond the grave, that though he does not possess citizenship in that kingdom by virtue of his own merit, Jesus can grant him a heavenly inheritance. Jesus can grant that because he is the king. He has that authority and he is that merciful. And so this man realizes, here's the answer. Here is the hope of salvation. Again, remember church, this is the one who just moments before had reviled Christ but now he sees in him his only hope in life and death. And so he openly repudiates his former life of lawlessness and rebellion and hatred for the Savior that he had just espoused moments before. Think about what this must have cost him in that moment. To go from publicly hating the Lord to publicly embracing and loving the Lord, to regarding him as holy, wonderful, mighty to save. This repentant criminal now stands opposed to this mocking, jeering crowd, and he alone is aligned with Christ. This is the furthest thing from easy believism in this passage. God worked in this man's life and he gave him a new heart. He was a brand plucked from the fire and he is bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. 
even as he hangs on the cross, his life is being miraculously changed. Let this be an encouragement, by the way, that God can and does change sinners who are utterly opposed to him. Be encouraged by way of this thief's example to lift up in prayer those lost souls that you know who, who in your mind's eye seem like lost cases, too far gone, on the brink of death. Pray for them. Pray for them. And dear ones, if this is you, if you are someone who has written off the Lord Jesus Christ and you have thought to yourself, um, this Jesus stuff isn't for me, I don't need religion, or you thought, I'll, I'll take up dealings with him some other time, humble yourself and do so today. Call upon the Lord as this man did. Admit your need confess your sin, flee to Jesus Christ, do so today. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. What a glorious hope we have in Christ. Now finally, look at the assurance Christ gives. Verse 43, and he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus says truly or verily or amen. You will be with me today in paradise as surely as my word is true and never falls to the ground, never returns void, Today you will be with me. He promises immediate deliverance from death into everlasting life, eternal paradise. This is the good, gracious, glorious news of the gospel. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's been said many times of this man, he had no opportunity to do anything else. He didn't have any time to get baptized, to perform good works, to receive the Lord's Supper. He never went on a missions trip, and yet he was saved. He was fully, freely, wholly forgiven by grace through faith. It was not his own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest any should boast, and so shall it be for all who call upon the name of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. What a great and awesome God you are. God, we thank you that Jesus died. God, we thank you that he gave up his life, that you might be both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. Thank you for your gracious promise. Lord, thank you that poor and needy sinners can come to you through true belief and true repentance, trusting only in your son, and know the hope of your salvation. Lord, sanctify your word to our hearts this day. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we ask, amen.